Good morning, beloveds. My name is David. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Luke, chapter 108, starting with verse 22. Sorry, chapter 8, starting with verse 22. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of O Come, Let Us Adore Him. Parents and guardians of children in kindergarten through fifth grade, you're invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Commons. As you're able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. As they sailed across, Jesus settled down for a nap. But soon a fierce storm came down on the lake. The boat was filling with water, and they were in real danger. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we're going to drown. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Suddenly, the, the storm stopped and was calm. All was calm. Then he asked them, where is your faith? The disciples are terrified and amazed. Who is this man? They asked each other. When he gives a command, even the wind and waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. And welcome to Haverhill Commons Church this morning. My name's Chrissy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as we do every morning, I would like to invite you just to pause for a moment before we enter into this time together, to quiet our hearts and our minds, and just to become present to where we are and to God with us. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to be together to be with you, to worship you. We thank you that you are here with us, present in a very real way this morning. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the things that you want to speak to us this morning, the ways that you want to engage with us this morning. Help us to notice and to pay attention and to make space for you in our hearts and our lives this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Growing up in church, Advent was one of my favorite seasons of the year. I loved the Advent wreath, the Christmas carols, the lights and decorations, Christmas pageants, and fun things we got to do like making ornaments or decorating Christmas cookies. In the weeks leading up to Christmas, we would put aside our normal kids' church activities and read beautiful Christmas stories with pictures and make special crafts. As kids, we got to participate up front in the main service with songs and pageants, or when our family was asked to do the Advent reading. There was also a sense of anticipation and hope and excitement that spilled through around Christmas time, and I felt that and loved it. And then there was our Christmas Eve service. It was calm and beautiful. There was warm, soft candlelight and Christmas carols, and it felt like gathering in the comfort of a living room all together as our church family. Every year it ended the same way. We turned out all the other lights 
And then our pastor took the Christ candle from the Advent wreath and walked down the center aisle with it, each person at the end of the row lighting their own candle. One by one, we passed the fire to each other down the rows, lighting our candle from our neighbors, until every person in the room held a tiny fire. As a parent, I now occasionally experience anxiety when my children hold lit candles, but as a child, it was thrilling. And after all the candles were lit, we sang Silent Night together in the candlelight, just like we'll do here at the Commons on Christmas Eve. For me, everything about that was beautiful. The way we pass the light of Christ to each other, a community brought together by Jesus. The peacefulness and beauty of the room lit only by candlelight. The blending of voices in silent night, melody and harmony coming together to create unity in diversity. And the way it always left me feeling. Because in that moment, the world felt peaceful and still and calm and bright. It felt like silent night. Do you ever have those moments where the world actually feels like silent night? All is calm and all is bright. Moments that you feel like heavenly peace. Or at least for a moment, you know, deep in your soul, the dawn of redeeming grace. The world made right. And you feel like you can sing Alleluia to Christ our King. Aren't those moments beautiful? But what do we do with the nights that don't feel quite so peaceful? The ones where it's 9 p.m. and you're still working because you have a deadline to meet. Or when it's 2 a.m. and your child wakes you up for the third or fourth or fifth time. Or when you have so many things scheduled that the only way to get through them all is to be awake until midnight and back up at 6. What about those nights? Is there space for Jesus on those nights? How do we think about the 364 nights before the silent night? Because let's be real here, I think my life often feels more like the things I just described than it does like silent night. In my attempt to do and be all the things, my life gets so full that I'm jumping from one thing to the next and to the next, and often the first thing to go is rest and sleep. Even when I'm not intentionally cutting corners, I'm notorious for waking up at 4.30 a.m. trying to solve all the problems anytime I'm stressed or anxious. And when I'm waking up at 4.30 a.m. after going to bed at 11, I'm getting at best five and a half hours of sleep and probably not the good, deep, wake-up-so-rested kind of sleep. But I'm a capable woman. I'll be fine on five or six hours of sleep a night, right? Well... Not according to science. In one of the chapters in their book, Burnout, educators and authors Emily and Amelia Nagoski pulled together some of the research on sleep and explained that our bodies quite literally can't do any of the things they're supposed to without it. Exercise, study, practicing or learning a new skill, they all require sleep for our body to recover or our brain to integrate the new knowledge before these activities actually provide any benefit to our bodies. So all the time you spend on those things, pointless if you don't sleep. Long-term sleep deprivation is also a factor in almost every leading cause of death, including heart disease, cancer, diabetes, hypertension, Alzheimer's, and poor immune function. 
So maybe sleep isn't just an afterthought for our bodies. But cutting corners on sleep really only affects me, right? So it's okay if I push through a little bit longer to get the next thing done because I'll be fine, right? Wrong. Studies show that being awake for 19 hours or sleeping for only four hours or sleeping six or few hours at night for two weeks, so pick your poison here, impairs your mental and physical abilities as much as legal intoxication. Did you catch that? Anything you wouldn't do drunk, like driving or going to work or parenting, you also probably shouldn't do without adequate sleep. Do you routinely get enough rest and specifically enough sleep? And what does enough look like for you? Have you slowed down enough to figure it out? <clears throat> and if not, like many of us, why not? What gets in our way? Why aren't we doing this? So I'm going to unashamedly steal Matt's Mad Lib idea from a couple of weeks ago and ask you to fill in the blank. Sleep is. First thing that comes to your mind. Sleep is. Wonderful. Inconvenient. Elusive. Essential. A gift. This morning we're continuing our Advent series on Prepare Him Room by looking at our bedrooms and the activity we spend most of our bedroom time doing. Sleeping. Sorry, if you were hoping for that purity culture sermon, not today. But as we explore together what it means to make space for Jesus in our bedrooms, I'm hoping we'll come to see the ways God invites us to, make, to receive gifts of rest and connection, gifts we can only receive when we first trust God enough to make space for Jesus through rhythms of rest and sleep. Now, a not-so-silent kind of night moment is exactly where we find the disciples in the passage that David just read. They're on their way across the Sea of Galilee after a long day of teaching when a storm blows in. And this isn't just any little wind gale. Luke describes it as a windstorm or a whirlwind on the sea, and Matthew is a great earthquake of the sea. And Luke makes sure we know that they were in real danger. Several of these men are seasoned fishermen and have probably sailed the sea their entire lives. So if they're panicking, it's bad. Imagine this for a moment. You're in a small boat, and the wind has whipped the waves up to the point that as you sink into the trough between them, they look like walls towering above you. Water is splashing over the sides of the boat. It's starting to fill up. You're alone in the middle of the sea, and there's nothing solid around to grab onto. You've done everything you know to do, but it's not enough. And somehow, your teacher is sleeping, taking a nap. At any moment, one of those walls of water is going to crash over you, and you're going down. This is it. End of story. It's over. And Jesus is sleeping. Really? Right now? So what are you going to do? Well, the disciples run in and wake up Jesus, shouting, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And in Greek, this is just three words. Master, Master, 
And this one word, apalumetha, that means we are actively in the middle of perishing. That's it. Three words. You can hear their desperation coming through here. Almost like if I see my child about to run into the road when a car is coming and I yell, Elias, Elias, stop! They're saying, this is it, Lord, unless you save us, we're dead. We don't have time for long, fancy prayers. We don't have time to come up with plan B. We have time for three words. Save us now. So at their cry, Jesus wakes up and rebukes the storm, just tells it off. And just like that, the storm stops. Just like that, all is calm. With just Jesus' words, the walls of water melt away, the wind ceases, the threat of destruction ends, and peace reigns on the lake. Imagine the adrenaline rush here. We're about to die. We're about to die. We're about to die. Complete stillness. If that were me, my body would be shaking coming off that kind of rush. Need to sit down. So naturally, Jesus' response is to run frantically around the boat, asking everyone, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Oh, wait. That's what I would be doing. Instead, Jesus looks at the disciples and asks them, where is your faith? Admittedly, I found this question almost maddening. Where is your faith? Did Jesus miss the part where they were actively in the middle of perishing? Where death was moments away? Don't they at least get credit for going to Jesus for help? So one biblical scholar I read points out that the issue here is not that the disciples cried out to Jesus for help. That was the appropriate response. The issue was their desperation. The fact that they thought they were actively in the middle of perishing with Jesus right next to them. So I wonder if Jesus' question is more, don't you know I've been here the whole time? Unless, leave me alone. More, do you trust me? Then how dare you be afraid? Like the storm stops, total calm, and Jesus looks at his disciples and says, don't you trust me? The disciples respond about like you might expect. They were terrified and amazed. Who is this man, they ask each other. When he gives a command, even the wind and waves obey him. Because if you know the Old Testament the way these men probably did, there's only one person who commands the wind and the waves, the God who created them. Which means if Jesus commands the sea to be still and it does, then he must be Emmanuel, God with us. And that raises a whole new set of questions for them to ponder. And it raises a whole new set of questions for us to ponder, too. What if the same Jesus who calms the storms of the sea could also calm the storms of our lives? 
What might it look like for us to trust God enough in the midst of a storm to be sound asleep in the middle of it, the way that Jesus was in the boat? Psalm 46 tells us that God is our refuge and strength, so we will not fear when earthquakes come. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then it instructs us to be still and know that I am God. This is the God we are invited to trust, the one who calms the seas with a word, the one who is our refuge and our strength. During this season of Advent, we are invited to remember that this same God is not distant or far off, but Emmanuel, God with us. The word made flesh who came and dwelled among us. But what does trust have to do with making space for Jesus in our sleep? Well, come to find out there are actually strong connections biblically between trust and peace and sleep. Psalm 4 tells us, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. And Proverbs 3 says, You can go to bed without fear, You will lie down and sleep soundly, for the Lord is your security. And Psalm 27 gives us this truth from the opposite perspective. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. God gives rest to his loved ones. God has a good gift that he wants to give us, his loved ones, rest. Why is it that I so often reject God's good gift? Perhaps because I don't actually recognize that it's a good gift? Because I think that in order to make it in life, To be secure, to have what I need, or get the promotion that I want, or get the grades that I feel pressured to get, I need to work anxiously from early morning until late at night? Am I, perhaps, arrogant enough to think that I know better than God, and the only person I can trust to make sure I'm okay is myself? What if right now Jesus is looking at me and at you and asking, don't you trust me? No worries. Maybe even enough to enter into the vulnerable state of sleeping. Trusting that you will be safe in the midst of storms because Jesus is with you while you do. Friends, sleep is an act of trust and of submission to God, which means it's an act of worship. And if we can recognize that, then I hope we can also begin to see sleep as the gift from God that it is, a way in which God blesses us with rest and opportunities for deeper connection, both with God and perhaps also with those closest to us. When we choose to stop what we're doing and to sleep, we are essentially making the statement, God, I trust you. 
We are allowing our bodies to function in the way our creator made them to, following the rhythms of morning and evening that we see from the creation story. We are physically acknowledging that we do not run the universe and that we can sleep in peace because we trust the God who does, the one who will not let us stumble, the one who never sleeps. That's worship. It's a declarative act of our trust in God over and above our trust in our own abilities to make things happen or to run our own little worlds. It's a declaration that God is God and we are not. And like any act of worship, it takes trust and it takes courage. This isn't what our culture tells us to do. We live in a culture that pushes performance and achievement at us almost constantly. You are what you've accomplished. If there's a problem, it's up to you to solve it. Author, researcher, and storyteller Brene Brown suggests it takes courage to say yes, to rest and play in a culture where exhaustion is seen as a status symbol. Exhaustion is seen as a status symbol. Because we are what we achieve, our own little gods running our own little worlds, proving our strength and superiority by our ability to keep going at all costs. Or at least so we sometimes act. Over and against the idea that we are what we do, that everything is riding on us, that if we don't make it spin, the world will just stop going around, we're invited to believe that God is with us. That the same Jesus who calmed the sea with a word orders and protects our lives. And he invites us to make space for him in our rest. To worship him by trusting him enough to stop and sleep. When we view sleep as an act of worship and as a declaration of trust, then we can receive sleep as a gift. We don't make it happen. We can't force it, and we're not in control of it. Sleep happens when we let go and allow our bodies to function in the way that they were created to function. Anyone else ever laid in bed trying to make yourself sleep? Knowing that you really need to go to sleep right now because you have a limited number of hours that you can be in bed and they're slipping away fast. We know we don't control it. We simply show up and receive sleep as a gift. We might actually recognize this gift best when it's taken away from us. When Elias was about five weeks old, he went a week or two without sleeping more than an hour at a time. If you've ever been a parent, you have some idea what that feels like. I can't tell you exactly how many days it was because it's all a little hazy from the sleep deprivation. But one thing I can tell you When we finally figured out what the problem was and Elias slept his first glorious four-hour stretch, it was better than any Christmas gift I've ever received. When we make time and space for Jesus to meet us in our sleep, we often receive two gifts from God, rest and connection. Sleep is restorative, Like I mentioned earlier, we need it for basically everything. Our mental function, our physical ability to heal, our emotional well-being. 
And I think there's also a gift of connection God wants to give us. I've noticed something almost entirely by accident over the course of my adult life. Many of my deepest and most vulnerable conversations happen in the darkness and stillness of a bedroom. I promise this isn't as weird as it sounds. It started with my roommate in college. We lived together for three years and shared a lot. Meals, classes, school activities, church. But most of our deep conversations about God and faith, how we really felt about the guys we were dating or not dating, the beautiful and the painful of our childhoods, those conversations happened after we were both in our beds and the lights were out and things were still. In the space between goodnight and actually falling asleep. It's been similar with my kids and in my marriage. Every night I put our boys to bed, usually separately. And as they go to bed, we do snuggle and talk, which is about what it sounds like. And I think a solid 90% of my kids' deep questions or observations about life, about God, about friends and relationships, good or bad, exciting or hard, have happened in those 15 minutes between when the lights go out and when I kiss them goodnight and leave the room. They're beautiful, precious moments of connection with my kids. And perhaps the place I've experienced this most consistently is with Hunter. With pretty rare exceptions, we've always gone to bed together. And wouldn't you know, many of our deepest conversations, our most vulnerable admissions, the things we feel hesitant or afraid to admit in broad daylight, our insecurities, come out quietly in those minutes between when the lights go out and when we fall asleep. There's an intimacy and a connection in those dark, still, quiet times that rarely happens to the same degree in any other time. And just as I've experienced this with human connections, I've also experienced it with God. When I turn my thoughts and attention to God in those moments before sleep, there's often a depth to prayer, a sense of reassurance of God's goodness and love, a willingness on my part to enter into vulnerability and honesty with God. I wonder if God looks at these moments with me the way I look at them with my kids, beautiful and precious, something my father hopes I'll show up for so we can experience them together. When I first threw out the idea for this sermon, Matthew Grauberger tossed back a question. How might it change how we view sleep if we expected God to meet us there every time? That struck me, and I've been thinking about it ever since. What if we expected God to meet us with gifts of rest and connection every time we showed up to sleep? Would that change anything about the way we order our days and weeks? For some of us, the invitation this morning might quite literally be just to sleep more, which to some of us might sound about as grounded in reality as Jesus asking his disciples, where is your faith? So it might be an invitation to take one small step towards a better rhythm of rest and sleep. Maybe it looks like carving out an extra 15 minutes of your evening to go to bed a little bit sooner so you can meet Jesus there. To give yourself time to connect with Jesus or those closest to you as you allow yourself to unwind and drift to sleep. Or if it's more your style, perhaps a 20-minute nap in the middle of the day. 
Or maybe it's a very practical step towards valuing and improving the time you do have for sleep. Less caffeine during the day, softer lights at night, turning off screens at least an hour before bed. And, dare I ask, could leaving your phone in another room at night be an act of worship? A way to make space for Jesus instead of social media or the news as you allow yourself to unwind towards sleep? For others, there might be an invitation here to consider the ways you've ordered your life, to consider your priorities. Do you feel forced to say no to sleep because you've said yes to too many other things? There might not be an overnight solution to this one, but there is an invitation to place the hours of your day before Jesus and to trust that anything he asks you to put aside, you are ultimately better off without. This could mean being willing to spend less time at night on hobbies or entertainment so you can sleep, to surrender any feelings of this is my time to Jesus when it's an acknowledgement that God, this is your time. Or maybe it's saying no to something, even something good, to free up some hours in your day. So I feel the need to admit right now that I'm actually not very good at this, and perhaps Hunter should have been preaching this sermon. I want to do all the things all the time, to be superhuman. I'm fine, it's fine, I'll be okay. But this fall, after taking a semester off class, I've become increasingly convinced that it's not fine. I'm not fine, and I can't do all the things. So for me, one invitation is to take a less intense seminary degree, to take my final class this spring and walk in May with a different degree than I planned, instead of spending another 18 months running at the pace that I've been running at, just to prove that I can do what I set out to do. It's not an overnight solution. I'm still taking one more class first, but I feel an invitation from God here to trust that this degree will be sufficient for now and to take this step so I can move towards making more room in my life to meet Jesus in rest and in sleep. Where do you feel Jesus inviting you to trust him this morning? Not to do more, but to surrender more fully. Not to force something to happen, but to show up, trusting that God is in control of the storms of your life so that you can sleep in heavenly peace. Because I'm convinced that Jesus has a beautiful invitation for us to receive deep and life-giving gifts of rest and connection when we make space for him in our sleep.